You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. All right, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 10 today. Uh, Once again, um, I'm providing the little green sheets that are on the table uh, right there in the middle of the the church. Uh, These are the references, uh, the Bible scripture references that we're going to be going over today. Don't be uh, afraid to get up and grab one right now. Uh, As I've said before, the ones that are in bold are the ones that I'm actually going to have you turn to. Uh, But this will help you to know where we're going uh, today as we uh, look at the Word of God. Uh, These verses that I'm about to read in a moment are some of the more popular verses in the Bible. Uh, At the core of these verses is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these verses also answer the question of what part do grace and works play in the process of our salvation, okay? So we're gonna be looking at that today. Let's read this passage and see. Uh, This is the very word of God. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses eight through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This ends the reading of God's word. Uh, Let's look to him for guidance because we cannot understand this or apply it without his help. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would come, that you would be here, that you would remind us of these wonderful truths, Lord. I pray that you would show us who we are, what you have done in our lives, Lord. And I pray that we would fulfill the mission to which you have called us, that we would truly, truly live and fulfill uh, the destiny that you have laid out for us. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we begin today, what I want to do is I want to pick up on a theme that we ended with last week. Last week, as we were looking at that passage, we said that, yes, we are mentioned a lot in those first uh, uh, eight verses, but we are not the focus of the passage. God is the primary focus of the passage. And I want you to see that again today as we begin and as we go through this sermon. Let me remind you that we were dead, spiritually speaking. We were not just sick. We were spiritually dead with no ability to save ourselves. It is God who was rich in mercy. It is God who demonstrated his great love towards us. It is God who made us alive. It is God who raised us up with Christ. It is God who seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. It is God who has saved us by grace And it is God who made us who we are, and it is God who has prepared the good works for us to walk in. All of this points to to God's immeasurable, the immeasurable riches of his grace. God is the hero of this passage, 
and every other passage in the Bible, and God is the hero in all of history. God is the hero. We see God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You look through those, the pages of the Old New Testament and you see people um, exhibiting great faith in God and doing tremendous things. And our tendency is to say, be more, we need to be more like Daniel or we need to be more like David or, or whoever it is. But here's what I want to remind you of. If God did not meet with Abraham, if God did not reach out to Abraham, Abraham would still be, would have still been a pagan worshiping pagan gods. If God did not visit Sarah and open her womb, Abraham and Sarah would have never had kids and the nation of Israel would have never been born. If God did not send Joseph down to Egypt, the children, uh, the, 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 most of the known world at that time, would have perished because of the famine that was there. And if God did not raise up Moses to deliver his people by a strong arm from the land of Egypt, they would have died there in the land of Egypt, never receiving the promised inheritance. If God did not show up, David would have been killed most likely by Goliath. If God did not show up, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been reduced to ashes in the fiery furnace. If God did not show up, Daniel would have been eaten alive when he was thrown into the lion's den. If God did not show up, no one would have been healed in first century Israel. The apostles would have never gone out and we would all be dead in our sins. God, people, is the hero of every story. God is the hero in our passage today. I believe that the primary reason that this passage was written is so that we as the people of God would cry out in thanksgiving to God for all that he has done, that we would stand in awe of him and declare how great is our God. I believe that that's why this passage was written. So let's look at this passage. As we mentioned many times before, we were dead and God made us alive. And his motivation for doing that was his great love and mercy for us. God's amazing response of making us alive when we were dead can be summed up in one word. And that one word is grace. Grace. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is, is getting what you don't deserve, and grace is also not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve and also getting, not getting what you do deserve. It is by God's sheer grace that you and I have been saved. So the question that we need to clarify today is because a lot of times— we might be guilty of using Christianese terms, right? We start to talk about justification. We talked about being saved. And, and a lot of people, what I've discovered is they don't really understand what are we saved from? And they, and they might not be able to articulate that. So I want to ask the question, the two questions of this, what are we saved from and what are we saved for? What are we saved from and what are we saved for? And the answer is this, we are saved from God for God, Okay. What do you mean we're saved from God? We are saved from God for God, okay? That is not a contradiction. Here's what I mean by that. God is the creator of 
everything in this world, in this universe, things that we see and things that we don't see. Therefore, God, as the creator, as the ruler, as the, as the king, is the one who establishes the rules of this universe. He establishes the physical laws and the spiritual laws as well. From the laws of gravity to the laws of morality, God is the one who establishes all of those. And God established in the very beginning, just focusing in on one of the laws that he established, is this, that the soul that sins shall surely die. Once again, that's a spiritual death. And he also said this, that the wages of sin is death, a spiritual death. Death, I, I, you've heard me say this before, death uh, can be spoken of in terms of separation. What happens when death occurs is there's a separation. The first death, the physical death, what happens is your body is separated from your soul. The soul and the body are separated. I'm, I'm sure that all of us have been to a funeral and you see the body, uh, the person laying there. Their body is there, but you know that that's not the whole person. Their soul is no longer there. If you were to look at the Bible, you would see that the Bible also talks about a second death. The first death is that physical death that happens to everyone, but the Bible also talks about a second death where a person's soul is separated from God forever. We see this in Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. Listen to what John says. He says this, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death. God created us for himself. He created us to be in relationship with him. Therefore, by far the worst punishment that anyone could ever undergo or experience is to be separated from God. That is the worst punishment. The worst of hell is not the fire. It's not that eternal fire that never goes out. The worst of hell is that you are separated from the one that you were created to be with. If God is just, and he is, then God must punish sin, and he does. God is the only judge of all the universe. God is the only one who can pass judgment and execute justice. And here's what I want to remind you of. His judgments are always right. And his punishments are always just and fair. There is never a mistrial with God. There is never any tampering of evidence. There is never any suppression of evidence. And there is never any appeals courts, right? There are no appeals courts. God is the ultimate supreme court. And I'm going to say this, the Supreme Court of the United States will answer to God. He is the Supreme Court. He is the judge, the jury, and the executioner. He is all of those things. And he will punish sin. Therefore, salvation, when we talk about salvation, that means salvation from God. 
who his wrath is being poured out on this world. We are saved from the wrath of God. So we could even say, uh, we could even make Ephesians 2, 8 to say this, for by grace you have been saved from the wrath of God through faith. Once again, I have to emphasize that this is all about God. It's all about God. God is putting his grace on display. Therefore, God is putting himself on display. He is not saying, man, look how good you are. Look how good you people are. Man, I made a good choice of bringing you into my family. God is not saying, I have no idea how I would do this mission if you were not here with me. No, remember that we were dead and God is the one who made us alive. And the grace that we receive, and I would even argue the faith to believe, is all a gift from God. Is a gift from God. And a gift is not something that you deserve. A gift is something that is given to you, something that is freely given to you. To emphasize the fact that this gift of grace is not given to us because of anything that God saw in us or sees in us, Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The means that God's gift of grace, uh, he means that God's gift of grace is not given to us because of our own achievements or as a reward for what we have done. Going back to the Old Testament uh, book of Isaiah, Isaiah said, that, said this about our best righteous acts outside of God. All of our righteousness is as filthy garments. And I don't want to be overly graphic, but you do need to understand what he means by that. The use of that term filthy garments means menstrual rags, which means that the best that we have to offer God is absolute filth. We come and present, here are my good works. Do you accept me? And it's absolute pollution. I would imagine that in a group like this, there are some who are looking over their life and thinking, man, I was messed up. Anything that the Bible said not to do, I did it. I went after everything that I shouldn't do. I was a rebel in trouble with the law, whatever it is. And those people can look back and say, man, God's amazing grace towards me is, is overwhelming. And I just bask in that every day. But I would argue that probably the majority of us have come from stable homes, uh, well-ordered houses, where we were provided with good educations and access to a bunch of other good opportunities. For the most part, we kept the rules, only doing minor acts of rebellion uh, from time to time. As a result, many, either consciously or subconsciously, may conclude that it really didn't take God much to save me. He didn't really have to do a whole lot to save me. Just a, a couple little minor adjustments in my thinking and in my, in, in my actions, but it didn't take him much to save me. Is that true? No, his head's shaking. Yes, they should be shaking. No, it is absolutely false. I was thinking about this. You ever seen when someone takes one of those black lights and they shine it on a surface that you were positive is clean and pure, and you see and you're like, oh my goodness, this is disgusting. This is 
gross. Or when someone um, maybe smells something in the house or, or maybe they see a crack and they remove a wall, a nicely painted wall, only to expose extensive termite damage or black mold, right? Here's what I would say, is that a lot of us are really, really good at covering up our sin and presenting a, a, a pretty good uh, life. And if you think that it didn't take God much to transform you, you are wrong. You may be a little bit better at hiding your sin, and your sins may be more mental than they were physical, but they're no less offensive to God. No less offensive to God. Um, in Matthew, in fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus reminded them back then and us of the seriousness of even mental sins, right? Those things that no one else can see but us. He said this, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. He just took it from the physical and pushed it internally and said, have you ever lusted? You've committed adultery as well. He does the same thing with murder, anger and murder. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. I say to you, if you hate your brother, you've killed him. You've murdered him. We are all dead in sin. Think about it this way. If you come across an accident where everyone, like a car accident, where everyone has been killed, there may be different degrees of damage done to each of the bodies, but they're all equally dead, right? And it would take an absolute miracle to raise any of them up from the dead. It is by sheer grace that we have been saved and brought back to life. Nothing, there's nothing that we could do to contribute to our salvation. And as a result of that, there is no room for boasting. There's no room for boasting. We did not figure this stuff out on our own. We were not smarter than the next guy or gal. We were not less evil and therefore a better candidate for salvation than the next person. We were all sinful. God made this clear to the Old Testament community in places like Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6. He said this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your own righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. The opposite is true is what he's saying. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 80 says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you to choose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. He loves you. He didn't see anything in you that was desirable. It's because he loves you. And in the New Testament, Paul talking about the condition of the human heart in Romans chapter 3 Verse 10 through 12 says this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And of course, the passage in Ephesians 2 Verses 1 through 3, which talks about us being dead in our sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and following after our own sinful lusts. 
God and God alone is the one who made us alive when we were dead. God and God alone is the one who transferred us from death into life, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from being his enemies to being his friends, from being outcasts to being the very beloved children of God. I remind you of all of this because to think otherwise, to think that you had a part in your salvation is to take glory away from God. It's to say in a sense, yes, God did this much, but I did this much. I did some of it. God did it all and he wants us to remember that. But why? Why does God want us to remember that? Is God a megalomaniac, right? It's just like, Praise me, praise me. And the answer is God does want our praise. And here's the thing that you need to realize. God wants us to experience the fullness of joy in this life and that only comes from knowing him. He, if he were to point us to anyone or anything other than himself, or if he were to downplay what he has done for us, then he is pointing us to something that is inferior and something, and he is not being truthful with us. That in the end steals our joy and our awe of God. Think about it this way, all right? Some of you may not get this reference, but I'm going to say it anyway. In 1982, this amazing computer came out known as the Commodore 64 computer, okay? No one had ever seen anything like this. 64 kilobytes of memory. A, you, could, you could type out stuff on it. You could do these programs. We stood in awe and we spent hours in front of that computer. It was amazing. If someone were to come to me today in 2021 and say, I need a recommendation for a computer, I would not point them to a Commodore 64 computer, right? If I did so, I would be selling them short. I would not be pointing them to the best. I would want to point them to the best. God also is in the habit of pointing us to the best, namely himself, namely himself. To point to anyone else would be a disservice to us. So for us to try to take any glory from God, to point to our own achievements in ourselves is absolutely absurd. Let me uh, have you think about it another way. Um, I know that some people won't like this illustration, um, but Tom Brady uh, just, uh, sorry, Tom Brady just, I'm just talking about facts here, people, okay? Uh, Tom Brady just earned his seventh Super Bowl title, his, uh, uh, his seventh uh, Super Bowl ring, and his fifth MVP. Let's just imagine that he's standing up there receiving his MVP uh, trophy and his honors, and then a middle-aged man jumps up there with a huge beer belly, right? And says, oh, no, no, wait a second, wait a second. I, I'm well aware that Tom Brady just threw three touchdowns in this game, but the day before, me and my buddies put together a flag football game, and I threw eight touchdown passes, right? More than twice as many that he threw. So to honor him is kind of premature. It's kind of like not fair because you're not taking everything into consideration. Anyone who would do that, right? What they're trying to do is they're trying to steal glory from Tom Brady. And at the same time, they look utterly 
foolish, right? Because there's no comparison there. There's no comparison whatsoever. God speaking in Isaiah chapter 42 verse 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. It's me. I keep all of my glory because I deserve all of my glory. He says a similar thing in Isaiah chapter 48 verse 11. He says this, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. People, once again, you need to get this. It is all about God as it should be. It is all to the praise of his glorious grace, which it should be. But beautifully, that is not where it ends. God did not just save us and then leave us alone. No. God is intimately acquainted with us and continues to work in and through us. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 with this wonderful, wonderful truth. He says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why can't we boast? Because even our current good works are a result of God's work in our lives. We are his workmanship. Now, I do not like to throw around Greek words as if I'm a Greek scholar, but I want to share with you what the actual Greek word is in this passage for workmanship. It is the Greek word poeum, poeum, from which we get our English term poem, poem. Now, when he's talking about this, it doesn't just refer to, to poems, but it refers to any work of art. We are God's artwork put on display for the whole world to see. Isn't that awesome? We are God's artwork. But unlike that wealthy man who is acquiring all of that art from other people, art that he didn't make, God is our artist. God is the one who made us. We were created originally by him along with everyone else. But as Christians, we have been recreated in Christ Jesus. Paul notes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God is involved in the, in our, the past, present, and future aspects of our salvation. Salvation is from the Lord from start to finish. We asked earlier what part do good works play in the process of our salvation. The answer is this. We are not saved by good works, but good works are a product of our salvation. Good works naturally flow out of a person who has been recreated, a person who is God's artwork. Good works will pour out of that life. We were created for good works. Good works. That, that, when I say good works, I'm talking about stuff that is pleasing to God, looking at, at the word of God and saying, what does God require of me? What does God forbid of me? And following those things. That's what I'm talking about uh, when I say good works. Good works imply a holy life 
which the writer of Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord. Okay? Good works reflect the character of God and prove us to be his children. You're just like your father, is what they should be able to say. No one more wholeheartedly than Paul repudiated good works uh, as a grounds for salvation. Paul is constantly saying, we're not saved by good works, we're not saved by good works. But at the same time, no one more strongly insisted on good works as a fruit of salvation. As a fruit of salvation. Let's look at a few verses uh, to demonstrate this. I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. And we're asking the question of, of uh, what part do good works play in the process of salvation? And we've already said that they do not save us. They do not save us, but they are a fruit. Uh, they are the proof that we have been saved. 2 Thess Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Paul says this. Now may the Lord... Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That's what God's desire is to establish us in every good work and word. I'm going to ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. <clears throat> Here's what Paul says there. He says this, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work. That's what we are called to do. And finally, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. The writer of Hebrews says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. People, we were created for good works. Our good works do not save us. They are a product that we have been saved. He took us who were dead and recreated us to represent and to reflect him uh, and to reflect his holiness. We, as Christians, as the people of God, are to be lights in a dark world. That is what we are to be. Our thoughts, our words, our actions are to reflect his character because his character is what is right and it's what ple is pleasing to him. Uh, author Kent Hughes in his commentary uh, says the following words. I want you to listen to this. There's so much truth in this, in this statement. Here's what he says. Quote, each of us has an eternally designed job description that includes the task, the ability, and the place to serve. You may prefer Jerusalem, but you will glorify him more in Babylon if he calls you there. And whatever the task to which he has called you, you will be equipped for it as surely as a bird is capable of flight. And in doing the works he has called you to do, you will both more and more, uh, you will be both more and more his workmanship and more and more true to yourself. 
your true self, end quote. I love several things about this quote. First of all, it takes me to the book of Daniel where, where we meet Daniel and his three friends and they're in the land of Babylon. They have been taken captive there because of the, the overall rebellion of the people of Israel. And what we see there is that they would rather be in Jerusalem, but in Babylon, they greatly magnify the Lord. They greatly testify to the greatness and the power of God and they influence the king and really the entire nation. Why? Because that is where God had called them to serve. I love that. God has called you to a specific place where you live, where you work. God has called you to those people. I think about this often. Those who are at, at UTMB as students, I don't have access to UTMB. You do. Those of you who are at Texas A&M or Galveston College, you have access to people I don't have access to. Those of you who may work at American National, you have access to people I don't have access to. Or wherever you work, that is where God has placed you and God has equipped you for the work there. The other thing I love about this quote is when he says this, as we live out our divinely ordered lives, we are more and more true to ourselves. It is our true self. You and I were not created for selfishness. You and I were not created for gossip. You and I were not created for sexual immorality. You and I were not created for greed. We were created to reflect God's character. And when we do so, we are actually living the way that God has intended for us to live. We are being our true selves that God has created us to be. We are his workmanship, his artwork, put on display for the entire world to see. And when people ask us, uh, people look at us, they should ask, why are you like this? Why do you do the things that you do? And what they're really asking is this, who made you like this? And our response is always, I am God's artwork. I am God's masterpiece put on display for you to see and to bring glory to him. That's who I am. Jesus said as much in Matthew 5, verse 16, he said this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we close, once again, I want you to see, to recognize, and to praise God. A dead person cannot raise themselves. A captive who is captive to someone much stronger than, than them could never free themselves. And a piece of artwork could never create itself. God took people who were dead and made them alive. God took people uh, who were captives in the realm of Satan and set them free. And God took nobodies and made incredible masterpieces out of them. If you are a Christian and you see yourself as anything less than a work of art, you do not see yourself properly. You do not see yourself the way that God sees you. Recognize what God has done for you. Praise him for the work that he has done for you and then allow him to continue to work in you. The process of bringing you to your, uh, to your full completion will most likely be painful as he is chipping away things on you. 
but in the end it will be all worth it because you will be displayed as a trophy, as a piece of art to the entire universe forever and ever. Finally, if you're here today and you're not in the family of God, if you've not given your life to Jesus uh, yet, if you haven't acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior, then I urge you to do so. And the way that you do that, how do I get into the family of God? Well, our text tells us, for by grace are you saved through faith. You are saved from the wrath of God by simply believing in what the Bible says about Jesus and about what he's done for you. It's believing that he is who he says he is, the son of God, the savior of the world, that he did what he said he would do, namely living the life, the perfect life that you were required to live but could not. And then he was punished for every sin that you ever committed, every lie, every lustful thought, every selfish act. It's believing that he died for all of those things. When you do that, what happens is that you are brought from spiritual death to life. Uh, you are set free from the captivity to sin and Satan. And you become a blank canvas or a slab of marble in the hands of the greatest artist in the universe, God himself, to take with you and to do and to make you into this amazing work of art to put on display in the universe. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, please don't leave this place without doing that. Come talk to me. Come talk to someone else that can show you how to do that. It is the most important thing you'll ever do. Put yourself in the hands of God and say, I am yours. Do with me what you want to the praise of your glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for who you are. We thank you for the truths of your word. Lord, I know that Satan is here right now. I know that he is discouraging. I know that he is, he is blinding eyes. Uh, he is uh, trying to convince people that this is garbage, this is not truth, that this is not important or whatever. It's just religious talk. And so I pray that you would shut him down, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would open hearts. I pray that you would save people. Lord, don't let people leave here today without giving their lives to you. We thank you for the truths of your word, Lord. Help us to live accordingly. Help us to live displaying ourselves as your great artwork and pointing to our great artist. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.